My name is August McLaughlin, and I've been contemplating girl boners for years. It's time for Girl Boner Radio with August McLaughlin, a spicy blend of personal stories, in-depth reporting, and inspiration. Girl Boner is where good girls go for sexual empowerment. Listen in as August McLaughlin, award-winning health and sexuality writer, explores female sexual pleasure like no one else. She's the big sister slash girlfriend you've always wanted, and she loves to talk sex. Only on Global Voice Broadcasting. Sex trafficking is the illegal business of recruiting, harboring, transporting, obtaining, or providing a person, especially a minor, for the purpose of sex. While it's easy to think of sex trafficking as something that happens in some foreign land, as today's guest knows well, it could be happening in your own neighborhood or even in your own life. Welcome back to Girl Boner Radio, everyone. I'm your host, August McLaughlin, and we have a very special and important show lined up for you today, thanks to a phenomenal woman you're about to meet. I plan to include a link to her incredible TEDx talk in my next email update and blog post. So if you want to get in on that wonderful stuff, make sure you sign up for email updates on my website, augustmclaughlin.com. I write to folks only about once a month. Later in the show, we'll hear from Dr. Megan Fleming, who has advice for a very thoughtful listener whose girlfriend isn't comfortable with penetration due to a history of sexual abuse, and he feels he's having some performance anxiety around their plan B. First, I am so thrilled and honored to welcome Tika Thornton, an advocate against sex trafficking, an inspiring survivor, and so much more. Thank you for being here, Tika. Thank you for having me. Yay. I have to first ask you, because it's kind of surreal, right, that we were TEDx speakers. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I remember sitting at the brunch, the preparation brunch, yes. and we were at the same table, mm-hmm. and you shared a bit about how important that experience was for you, and I know uh, up to that point, you hadn't done a lot of public speaking. Mm-hmm. What was the whole experience like for you? <sighs> Surreal is the word. Um, I never thought, um, coming from South Central L.A., Um, and uh, being a survivor of human trafficking, the last thing that I thought that someone would want to hear my story. And, you know, a large audience of people wanted to hear my story, especially in the TED Talk forums. So it was, it was, and it still is, um, one of the most dynamic things to happen in my life, definitely. You were so natural up there, and I so appreciated your vulnerability, which was palpable in a really positive way, that you were willing to not only share, but really from your heart, and you had people laughing as well, which I think is a really big thing and something that takes a lot of skill when you're talking about a heavy topic, Mm -hmm. and the audience adored you rightfully, so big kudos for that. Thank you. (laughs) So you mentioned growing up in South Central L.A. Yes. You grew up in an area known as the jungle. Yes. Could you explain what that atmosphere was like? Well, it's an area that is, uh, has to have at least 100 to 200 apartment buildings. Um, and it's, it's considered as a concrete jungle. That's why they call it the jungles. Um, and it... <sighs> especially back in the 80s and 90s, it was very wild, I'm telling my age. Um, It was, uh, and still is, I would assume, very saturated with drugs and alcohol and violence and um, gangs and, you know, just a lot of trauma in one area. So it was, I mean, now that I'm an adult, I see it as it was, It was unhealthy, but as a child, it was my neighborhood. It's where I grew up, so I didn't really know any different until I started to go to school outside of uh, my neighborhood. Mm. Yeah, it was what you knew. Yeah. And it probably felt like, well, this is everyone's life. And as you grew to understand that it wasn't Mm -hmm. everyone's life and that there was unhealthy happenings around you, at a certain point, home life was challenging enough that you felt the need to leave. Could you tell us about that when you were 12? Well, like I said in my TED Talk, I I come from a long line of generational trauma. And so 
my parents did the best that they could with the amount of knowledge and, you know, experience that they've known. Um, my father, uh, he had a battle with addiction. Um, my mother, she was just, she wasn't very happy. And, you know, despite of knowing that I'm a child and, and understanding that I'm not supposed to be exposed to a lot of things that I was, I just, um, I didn't feel loved. Um, I know my dad loves me, you know, he's my everything. Mm. I know my mom loves me. But at the time it was just, I, I didn't have an outlet. I didn't have anyone to talk to. I didn't have anyone to tell me like, you know, your parents are going through a lot and it has nothing to do with you. It's not a reflection of you. It's just something that they're going through within themselves. As a 12 year old girl, there was no way that I can understand that. So I took it personally and I felt like, you know, my mother being a single parent at the time, I felt like I was a burden on her. And I just, I felt that if I, if I left, things would be better. Uh. And, you know, she'll be able to have more money for my brother who is five years younger than me. And, you know, she'll be able to, to not really stress about me because I was, wasn't a problem child, but I was just the average, you know, rebellious 12 year old. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember that age and it's, I think it's difficult for anyone. Right. And when you're in unusual, exceptionally challenging, you know, surroundings, mm-hmm. how much harder that would be. And yeah. and that you internalize that as, as a reason to feel guilt or that you were a burden speaks a lot of your heart and also probably your parents' hearts. I mm-hmm. imagine there was a lot of love. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's not enough. And, and because of all that generational trauma and mm-hmm. the things you're going through, you decided to leave and virtually without a plan. No, no, not a plan. I knew that I had gotten in trouble when I was in school. And so I was just like, I can't deal with it. You know, I, I don't want my mom to be upset with me. I don't want her to lash out at me. It was like, let me just leave. With nothing or did you have? With nothing. With nothing, I—I I mean, I was twelve. Mm, Even yeah. though I thought that I had—I—I I was mature for my age. <laughs> yeah. You know, I was—I was pretty dumb for my You're like, age. Like I got this. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. we always think we're so much—we're totally mature. Exactly. We're grownups practically. We can take care of ourselves. Who exactly. knows what's going to happen? Yeah. No clothes, no money, no food, no nothing. Just. I'm just going to leave. You know, teenage, we're impu- they were impulsive. You know, yeah. we were very impulsive at that age. And you feel invincible, too. Exactly. Exactly. So I just, I just left. And was it the same day that you then met a man who? Yes. So you mentioned in your talk that it was raining mm-hmm. and this man pulled up. And what did he say to you? Um, He was just like, hey. You know, and I, I was trying to ignore him because, like, you know, stranger danger or whatever. And so, and then he was just like, hey, you know, I just want to talk to you. And, you know, I'm not, not trying to harm you in any way. And he was just like, it's raining. Like, are you are you okay? And I'm just like, you know, I'm tired. You know, it's wet. It's probably about 12, 1 o'clock in the morning now. And it's just like, okay, I need to figure out something. You know, if somebody's willing to help me, I should allow them to help me. You know, that was my my logic at that time. And so um, he asked me if I wanted to get in the car to get out the rain. And I was just like, yeah, I do. You know, my feet are tired. I'm tired. Like, I, I need I need some rest. Yeah, and some shelter. Yes. Even some respite from the, the cold rain. Yeah. 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 Who wouldn't want a little support? Yeah. And so you got into the car. Yes. And did you converse right away? I know he ended up offering you weed. Yeah. Well, we started talking, and he was just asking me, like, you know, how old am I? Of course, I lied about my age. And asked me why I'm walking around the streets. I was just like, wow, me and my mom got into it. And, you know, I just left. And then it was just, um, you know, it was just some little 
just a little conversation, probably about about music or about what I like, you know, just things that kind of piqued my interest. To make you feel comfortable. To make me feel comfortable, Mm -hmm. exactly. And then he offered me some weed, you know, and it was just like, you know, I I know drugs, you know, I, I know crack, I know alcohol. You know, I know at that time it was like PCP and heroin. And it's like I knew all of those things. And I just knew that all of those things had a bad stigma, you know. But when it came to weed, it was just like, oh, it's just a recreational thing. It's cool. You know, you just get the munchies. Chill out. Get a little goofy. Yeah, that's it, you know. So I was just like, you know, "Mm, if I'm going to try anything, it'd probably be this. So, and you probably wanted to feel a little better. I did, you know, and it was just, I wanted the goofy, yeah. you know, I wanted the chill because I wasn't there. Yeah. So I, 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 I accepted the invitation. Yeah. And what was that experience like? <sighs> At first, I didn't really notice how it felt. I was just thinking like, oh, it's not working on me. You know, mm-hmm. this is it. Doesn't, I'm, I'm immune to it. You know, unclimactic. Right. You know, and then I woke up in a strange place. Wow. So do you, looking back now, have the sense that it was something more than marijuana? Yes. And so you were unconscious. Yeah. And when you woke up, you were in quite a lot of pain. Yeah. Yeah. Um, When I woke up, I was I was still groggy you know, from whatever the weed was laced with. And um, I started trying to focus in on everything. But like I said, um, my head was hurting and my body was in pain. So I was just trying to figure out, okay, what the heck is going on? You know, where were you? I In a room? I was in a room. Um, it was, it was really... I mean, like, when you look on movies and you see, like, crack houses and stuff like that on on movies, like, it was something out of a movie, you know? Like, it was, um, it was like, um, sheets on the windows and, you know, it was like a hole in the wall. It was just, it was bad. And then um, once I, like, saw what was going, where I was, sort of. And once I was starting to understand what was going on, you know, there was a guy on top of me and that's what, that's where the pain was coming from. And, you know, there was moisture dripping on my face. He was sweating on me, you know, and it was, (laughs) I was in shock to say the least. You know, it took me a while to really understood, well, to remember what had happened because I I had blocked it out. Mm, Your brain was protecting you. Yeah. And so um, when I figured out, you know, that it was something on my face, I tried to wipe my hand, wipe my face, and I couldn't because my hands were tied up. So. um, Did you know what rape was at that point? Yes. Yes. Uh, In the neighborhood that I grew up in, we are very, ex- we are exposed to a lot of things at a very young age. So um, hearing about rape, sexual assault, um, we knew, you know, we are very aware of that. And so I figured out what was happening. And then once I tried to scream for help, you know, I was just getting punched in the face, mm. you know, repeatedly, and I would black out, or I'll be knocked unconscious. And then it was the nightmare because it was more it was different men every time I came to it was it was different men and this happened I really don't know I was gone probably for about three days four days at this time so um that's only because the police when I think a family member had found me walking around the streets at that time and when I went to the police station they had you know I found out how long I was gone and so, um, yeah, I went through that nightmare for probably about three or four days. How terrifying. I'm yeah. so sorry that happened to you. Yeah. Do you recall how you left that scenario? Did they just leave you somewhere? Well, the guy was gone. Um, I was untied so I can use the restroom. But it's like 
there's a picture that's on Facebook of a horse being tied to a plastic chair. And every time I see that, I think about that situation because I could have left, I could have walked out the door, but I was so fearful that I just stayed put. And the the um, room or the apartment was abandoned and the landlord had came in and he found me and he was like, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm not telling you anything until you get me out of here. So right. I, I could barely walk. So I, I got in the back seat of his car and he just drove and I didn't. And he was just like, well, where do you want me to go? And I said, I just drive. And literally nightfall came and he parked at a, a laundromat and I kind of like waddled out of the car and a lady saw me and she asked me what's going on. I told him like, you know, I'm 12 years old and this guy had me and, you know, these guys were having sex with me and I was tied up and, you know, I just, I just wanted to be away. I didn't have any clothes on, didn't have any shoes. So the lady just took whatever that was left at the, excuse me, at the laundromat and she gave me the clothes and I just walked away. And I was still, I went back to the same neighborhood. It's what you knew. It's what I knew. Did you go to your home? No. No. I On just, the streets? I just went back to somewhere where I, I felt a little bit more comfortable, even though it was where it started. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And, um, you know, I just, I, I can't really remember too much after that. It was just, I was just numb. Yeah. Understandably. Um, yeah, I ended up going into juvenile hall, and uh, that was a safe place for me. Mm. You know, so it was I was able to get rest. I didn't have to worry about anyone over me, anyone harming me, anyone yelling at me. I just had to do what I was told and just be, which is a huge change from where it was before. A safe space. Yeah. And... Did you then want to stay there? Obviously, you couldn't stay there permanently. No, I, I was 12 years old. And I think I knew what was going on. Think I thought I knew what life was. I wanted to go out. I was like, you know what? That happened. It's an isolated happen situation. It will never happen again. And, you know, I was a runaway pretty much in my teenage years. And every time I would meet a guy... And I would tell them exactly what happened to me. They took advantage of it. Okay. Yeah. Uh. So it went from, I don't know, I can't consider this guy as a pimp, but he was he was an exploiter. I will give him that title. Um, but the other guys that I met, you know, just how the coercion part of it. Um, I say probably this, I, I gosh. The second one, he was just like, you know, well, you've already done it, you know. Uh, what's the problem? Just this way, you're in more control. You talked in your TED Talk mm -hmm. about the formula. Yes. And I don't think a lot of people realize that. They think that people go to, again, these other countries, mm -hmm. and perhaps they might bring in some orphans from another country mm -hmm. during a Super Bowl party. And I know that that stuff happens. Yes. But you brought light to the fact that I believe it was over 300,000 yes. children in the U.S. Yes. In all different kinds of neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. What is that formula? Could you share kind of, there's this sort of pipeline. Yeah. Well, as <clears throat> far as domestic trafficking, um, you basically take a young girl that's from or a young child because it, it's not just girls it's it's boys and men as well um you take a, a young child or someone that's very vulnerable because of their financial situation um because of their emotional situation their mental situation you know you take someone from a from a traumatic background and you you basically give them the things that they are missing in their lives. You know, some some people will give them clothes. You know, they will take them out to certain places that they've never been to before. They'll show them attention. They'll give them a false sense of love. And for someone that is 
looking for those things, that are desiring to have those things in their lives, they're going to cling on to that person. And from there, it's just how they present the situation to them. You know, it most cases there is called a Romeo or a boyfriend pimp. And what they do is they, you know, they they wine and dine the girl or they just, you know, talk to them in a way that that's like a fairy tale that they've always wanted a man to come into their lives and say certain things to them. And then, you know, if they're staying in a hotel room, they'll say, well, I'm broke. I spent all this money on your clothes and taking you out. And now I don't have enough money to pay for the room. So you're going to have to go somewhere else or you're going to have to go back home or whatever the situation is. And then the girl usually is like, no, but I love you and I want to stay with you. And then they say, okay, well, the only way that we can stay together is if you go spend some time with Chuck over here, you know? And it'd be like, the girl will be like, well, I don't want to do that, you know? How would you feel about me? Like, And then he'll reassure her, you know, it's it's only sex, you know? It's, it's nothing. I have, we have each other's hearts, mm-hmm. you know? It's not about your body. You know, these, these guys, there's some smooth talkers. It's very strategic and methodical. It is. And especially when you're craving compassion and love and someone to care for you as we all do as humans. Mm -hmm. And when you haven't had that at home or you're living on the streets to have that kind of comfort and you have companionship. Mm -hmm. And that's probably why I've, I've heard that so many people who are being trafficked don't realize they're being trafficked because they think they're in a relationship. They're Mm -hmm. being taken care of for the first time. Yeah. So I know you had a a turning point of sorts. Mm -hmm. I believe when you were 17, you decided to leave. You'd had enough. What prompted you to get up and say no? Uh, I was in the hospital. Mm. Um, I I was badly beaten up by a pimp. And... Once I was in the hospital and I, once I came to, because I was unconscious for a minute, um, the nurse asked me, like, what happened? I didn't want to talk to the police. I didn't want to talk to anybody. But when she came to me and asked me what happened to me, and I will never forget her little, tiny little Jamaican woman and with a very thick accent. And I just told her exactly. I told her my life story, you know. I was brave. And she says, oh, you got to go. So she gave me $200 and she gave me um, hospital hygiene stuff. I mean, everything that I had was in a in a grocery bag, you know, and I left. Finally, compassion without a price tag. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. She was an angel in your life. Yeah. That you brought in by opening up and, and you sensed that that was a safe place to yeah. I imagine your your instincts had to have grown quite strong about people uh yeah and I learned fast um so probably about the time I was 14 years old I kind of I knew how to stay out of danger even though I was still in danger because I was in the life and I was taking a lot of risk but at the same time it wasn't to where it was life or death you could keep those boundaries. What were some of the ways that you protected yourself? Well, um, I tried to stay away from drugs as much as possible. You know, I'll be completely honest. I did smoke weed when I was younger as a teenager, but I stayed, I I didn't do it while I was working. It was my escape after everything was done, mm. you know, and I, I'm not a drinker, so alcohol wasn't a thing for me. I mean, now it's a glass of wine, maybe. But then I just I just couldn't do it. You Plus, wanted the clearness of mind. Exactly. And it's kind of crazy because my birthday is on New Year's Eve, which is like the national drinking day. Yeah. But at the same time, I just, I've never really been a drinker. You, you know? had the wherewithal. You had a, a maturity about you. Yeah. Perhaps having to grow up fast as well. Mm-hmm. But to, to recognize that. Could you speak to, because I think when when people are very unfamiliar with this topic, they can't imagine somebody wanting to pay somebody Mm -hmm. to abuse them, Mm -hmm. to to abuse the child. Mm -hmm. 
and I realize there's so many complexities to that, and so much of it is kind of cultural ideas about sex and sh- and sexuality and, mm-hmm. and all of that, and and the generational trauma as well. Mm-hmm. I'm sure contributes. But for anyone who's unfamiliar, tell us about the I don't know what you call them, and I, I imagine they might have called them clientele for you, mm-hmm. quote unquote. They were tricks and johns. That was okay. the that was the uh, the lingo that they used or the still used to this day. Well, it's. A lot of the men that I came across were usually married or they were socially awkward. Um, they didn't have the confidence to, you know, to date. And back in that day, at that time, there wasn't any, you know, online dating. There was hardly any Internet at that time because this is like in the 90s. Yeah. And, um, you know, they're... So it wasn't easy for them to approach a woman. So if you're if if it's hard for you to speak your mind about what you want, as far as in a relationship wise, you know, relationship case, can you imagine how it would feel, you know, to be sexually frustrated and wanting to have that intimacy with someone and can't get it because you you can't talk to any anyone. Yeah, you're stunted emotionally. Exactly. So it it will be only logical in some way, to purchase sex. Most men, well, a lot of men aren't really thinking about age. They see a girl on the street, she looks nice, you know, her body's nice, she's cute, you know, and um, I, I ask her how much, she asks me, you know, what do I want? I pay her the money and I have a good time and I go about my life. Mm. There's no hangups. And then there's another situation where men are married and their wives are good women. Can't take away from that. They're great mothers. They take care of the house. But when it comes to the intimacy, when it comes to the sexual part of it, they're very reserved. There's a lot of limitations. And so, you know, again, it's only logical to go out and purchase a woman that, you know, depending on the price, you can get what you want. Mm. So there's a disconnect in both cases. There it sounds is. like between the person's own relationship with mm-hmm. their with, with their sexuality, their intimate needs, mm-hmm. communicating their desires with a partner, and perhaps I know a lot of women feel shame around desire, mm-hmm. especially if they have kids yes. and busy. There's all these different reasons. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned they aren't thinking about where this person came from exactly. when they find somebody on the street and you know, which is very different. Your scenario is very different from somebody who decides to go into sex work because they find the work empowering or they, you know, they want to work with um, in the sexuality field and and that kind of thing. It's completely different when it's not your choice. It was something you were forced into mm-hmm. and you didn't see it as any kind of quote unquote prostitution or it's at one point you did but then right. you realized differently could you tell us about that well to, to piggyback on what you were just saying um it's hard to believe that any woman wakes up and says you know what I'm gonna have sex for money and I'm gonna feel empowered about it at some point probably in the very beginning they there was that shame there or there was something that that drove them into doing it money is the big part of it it's not that they enjoy sex and they just want to do it because um, it's something that they enjoy. There's a lot of women that, that are that way. Yeah. But for the most part, it was something that was missing, you know? Yeah, when you're coming from that poverty environment as mm-hmm. well, right? Where yes. you have very few choices. Yes, yes. But, um, like, especially we do, I, w- I work for an organization called Journey Out. And we do outreach on uh, one of the main uh, prostitution tracks in uh, South, South Central LA. It's called Figueroa. And um, there are generations of women or girls that have lived in that same area that see it, have seen it for years. I went into a house of three generations of women that have worked on that same street a grandmother, a mother, and a daughter. And it's normal. You know, I hear the grandma, I I did it when I was younger. I mean, when there's no jobs around, you have no limited education, what else do you do? 
And you it's know. your normal just as your home was. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so there's there's a lot of girls. I mean, with the media today, certain television shows, certain magazines, I mean, it's it's all sexually driven, but in a negative way. Yes. I see people being sexualized mm, instead mm. of sexually empowered in exactly. many ways. And we, we get depictions of this quote-unquote sexual empowerment that is more about objectifying mm-hmm. usually a woman. Yes. And that's so, so different. It's They're opposites, really, right. because there's the authentic connection we have with ourselves and our intimacy in our lives. And then there's the kind where we're supposed to look and act a certain way. And, right. and you're there to entertain or provide or be seen or touched mm-hmm. rather than experience that nourishment yourself. Right, yeah. right. So when you left California with the $200 from that angel nurse, yes. what was it like to move on from that? Was it something that happened pretty quickly? Was it a gradual process? Well, I, I still wasn't out. Um, to be completely honest, I was out of being exploited by someone. Okay. Um, the whole having a pimp situation or scenario was done. Um, for some reason, I felt empowered because now I was able to do sex work on my own. It was your choice. It was my choice. And no one was abusing you to do it. Yes. But at the same time, it still gave me the empty feeling. But I, it was more of survival than anything else at that point in time. Mm. So I, I say I victimized myself um, until, up until I was 23 years old, um, working in strip clubs and um, still working in the industry. And it wasn't until I was in a relationship with a man and he had three children and he... He started to let me understand what I was doing to myself. He never told me that he wanted me to stop, and I didn't, I didn't meet him in that um, in that realm. But he didn't tell me to stop. But he was just telling me, like, you know, I have a daughter. You know, if you want to be a part of her life, you you have to do more for yourself. Hmm. He knew that it wasn't something that was coming from an authentic place. Right. It was it was derived from the abuse. Yes. Because your development into a young woman Mm -hmm. was so influenced when we're just trying to get to know our bodies and we're changing. All of that got mixed up into this grown-up abusive. Yeah. And it it actually started earlier than 12. I was first sexually molested at the age of of six years old. So my, my life has been sexualized. You know, I've been... I've always, not always, but at that point, I thought that that this was something that women have to be subjected to at one point in time. Mm. You know, it just so happens that my situation was a little extreme, but, you know, I'm a woman. I have boobs. I have hips. So sex is a part of it. We see that everywhere. Again, yeah. it's the, the depictions, you know, of, mm-hmm. that it's not about our own desire and pleasure. Right. So when this partner of yours shed light on self-care mm-hmm. and it sounds like you inter- you really introspectively thought about that, yes. how did that affect you and, and what changes did you begin to make? Well, we started to just make plans. We just started to move forward. What are we going to do? You know, and... It was just like, okay, well, the amount of money that I was making before, it's not going to be the same. So, you know, we need to come up with a plan. I humbled myself and got a regular nine to five job making absolutely nothing. And then I got an opportunity to start a business. And I had a, a detailed business with my with my uh, my ex. And that's when the empowerment came. Mm. You know, that's when... You know, because of his hard work, his far as labor, and far as my my business sense, and I tell all of my my ladies that are in the life or that have gotten out the life, if you can if you can sell yourself, you can sell anything. You are a businesswoman off the bat, mm. you know. And so for me, because I I knew how to talk to people, 
um, I knew, I understood in order to get what I want, I have to give a little. And even as bad as it sounds in the life, you can transfer all of those, I don't want to call them skills. I'm trying to find a better word, but for a lack of a better word, skills yeah, yeah. into regular business. And from there, it was just, like I said, empowering. Uh, yeah, That's so fascinating and so important, too, because I think what you mentioned, leaving that life means leaving what you feel mm-hmm. is the one thing you can do. Yeah. It's often quite lucrative. Yes. So to switch to an hourly pay that maybe in a day you'd make less than you would in one yes. of these experiences, yes. that's huge. And to to tell someone, you know, you can you can take those quote skills, mm-hmm. the things that you've learned mm-hmm. and the things that you are naturally good at and the strength that you have and right. apply it somewhere else. Was there a moment or a time that it really hit you that, whoa, I'm, this really is my better life. Like I've, I've turned things around. I want to say um, I was with my ex for over 10 years and it wasn't until the relationship was over and I had lived in Chicago for 15 years and then I moved back to California um, about four years ago now. It wasn't until I was back in California um, the business was over and done with. We had to dissolve everything. And I was homeless. And, you know, I was I was mentoring, so I was making a little bit of money. I only had enough money to have a rent out a storage unit, uh, pay my cell phone bill, you know, have money for trans, you know, buy me a, a bus pass for a month and um, able to feed myself. And I was sleeping on the beach. You know, I would basically go to Starbucks, charge up all my uh, devices, go to Santa Monica Pier, which they have internet, they have Wi-Fi at the beach, FYI. I don't know. Yes. And I would sit there all night until the sun came up, and then I would go into the middle of the beach and I would sleep because there were people around and it was you it was busy. I had already had survival, you know, skills from being uh, a child. So I was able to use those things as an adult. And when I looked up and I said, I have not sold myself so I can be able to have a roof over my head, so I can have more money in my pocket. That was the moment for me when I was just like, I'm okay. That is so profound that your I'm okay moment came homeless. Yes. With no place to call home. You were taking care of yourself and it was what had changed inside. Yes. Wow. I totally humbled myself. Yeah. And I I tell a lot of women that I work with or that I come across, I let them know it's not until you totally humble yourself when you know that you're out of the life. Mm. Yeah. So you do wonderful work now, mentoring people. And you talked about this amazing full circle moment Mm -hmm. in your talk where you were basically made aware of this position Mm -hmm. to mentor people. Mm -hmm. What happened? So um, my mentor had, well, I had met a woman and she had, um, I told her my life story. And that's when I recognized that I was a a survivor of human trafficking. And from there, she was just like, oh, well, do these trainings. So I went through all these trainings and learned as much as I could. I was kind of obsessed with everything. And uh, she was just like, okay, well, there's a group home that's looking for a survivor to co-facilitate their CSEC, which is um, um, commercially sexually exploited children. Um, and they talk about human trafficking. They talk about the, uh, the warning signs, the pitfalls of being in the life. And so I, I, I went into the interview and I, I spoke with the lady and after we had the interview and she was just like, um, she was like, was there any, any other questions? I was just like, um, where is this located? You know, like, is there any like landmarks or anything special around this area? And then she was telling me, she was like, yeah, it's, it's over here and it's in this city. And I was just like, wait a minute. So are the names of the different dorms, like, of trees? And she was like, yeah. And I was like, wait a minute, I was there. 
And she was like, what do you mean? I was like, uh, probably about 20 years ago, I was a client at this very same group home. I chills. Yeah, so it was just, once I went to the group home, it was, it was amazing. Like I, I slept in these beds, I ate at these tables, I was here at this very place when I was in the life for one, and when I was that lost child. And then for me to come back and talk to these girls and tell these girls my testimony and let them know, yes, it may seem hard right now, you know, but you can make it. And I am proof of it. Yeah, I, I am no one special. You know, my story is not special. You know, if you listen to what I'm saying to you and what these staff are telling you and the curriculum that these that they have, you can be... 10 times further than when I am, where I am today because they didn't have this type of curriculum when I was that when I was there. You didn't have that role model to look to. No. If you had, have you thought about that? <sighs> if Atika came in and said, "Hey, there's a future for you." Would you I, believe it? And then, oh gosh, I probably would be a doctor. <laughs> you know, um I, I would have, uh, you know, a huge house on the hill and <laughs> properties everywhere. And, you know, I probably have it all. But at the same time, I always think of the downfall. I wouldn't have purpose in my life. Yes, because you feel this led you to your ultimate purpose. My pain brought me my purpose. Mm. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. And were you homeless when you started that mentoring position or were you, how were you yes. able to okay they didn't know that at the time but yes I was I was homeless um I was I was couch surfing and um but for the most part I was I was living on the beach and um it wasn't until until like the very towards the end um a family member let me come and stay with them uh, for about six months and I'm told grateful for that and then from there it was you know my mentor had me going to more trainings and I started to be more a part of the fight you know because I I my what I love to say is that I went from a victim and then I became a survivor and now I'm a warrior Mm. you know now I'm a warrior against the fight you know I'm here for the other women I'm here you know to to understand not to judge you know I'm here to to be that person in their lives I'm here to be that Tika I wish I had so so gorgeous you are a warrior a very I very special in my opinion thank you Uh, I'd love to share a question from a listener that ties somewhat into your experience and It comes from a listener named Jeff. Mm -hmm. Jeff wrote this. My girlfriend grew up in foster homes where she went through a lot of sexual abuse. She told me from early on that sex is difficult for her, and I respect that. She does enjoy masturbating. She says that feels safe. Recently, after a year together and no sex, we make out and cuddle a lot though. She suggested masturbating together. Ironically, that seems to give me stage fright. Mm -hmm. We tried twice and I literally couldn't get it up. It's so frustrating. I really want this step for us to move forward and love that she trusts me. What should I do? Limp and humbled, Jeff. Jeff, thank you so (laughs) much for your question. You have a good sense of humor I can hear. And you also have a big heart. Thank you for respecting your partner's sensitivities and being in it with her. I shared this question with our resident sex and relationship expert, Dr. Megan Fleming out in New York City. Here's what she had to say. Jeff, very thankful for this question. And I imagine so many others who are listening Um, might really be able to benefit um, from this question. So first of all, I just want to say that, you know, I kind of sort of feel through your question, the love that uh, both you and your girlfriend have and the ability to sort of support one another and take it slow and really see the value of the intimacy and the connection and recognizing that in time as it's already happened and is happening, uh, greater levels of physical intimacy 
have come and are coming. Um, so I also think it's awesome and amazing that despite your girlfriend's history of and, and trauma that she's been through in terms of sexual abuse, that it didn't shut down her sexuality completely. That as you said, and I think it, you're dead on, of course, on her own, perfectly safe, right? Can uh, take all the time she needs and you know nothing is intrusive or unwanted. Um, and the fact that she really enjoys masturbating and having orgasms and uh, you know being connected with her sexuality is, is really awesome. And that she really wants to share that with you. So even though it's taken time um, and you're not yet having penetrative sex, you, you know, you're already making out and cuddling and, you know, it sounds like you haven't yet worked with a therapist, but you guys are really intuitive because it's all about a bridge, right? Like what is the next right step? And the role of doing mutual masturbation and relaxing and feeling the safety and the comfort of that um, and being sexual together at the same time, I think is a perfect bridge. So I can also say it's not so surprising to me that, you know, you've really been wanting this for a long time and you're excited. And yet we call this sort of performance anxiety or performance demand. It's sort of like all of a sudden batters up at the plate and, you you know, you got to perform and you got to be aroused right now. And and the reality is, you know, you can't uh, command yourself to be aroused any more than you can command yourself to be sleepy. Um, that, you know, arousal is really a reflex. And so, uh I completely get that it's frustrating and that you've only sort of, you know, try this once or twice. But, you know, what I guess I'm saying is don't sell yourself short and psych yourself out because you've totally got this and you've got each other. Um, Really, it's about taking just like you've taken the time for her to get to the point of cuddling and kissing and this next step. You know, you're going to take your time in this. And when you all of a sudden don't feel like anything has to happen, you take the expectation off the table and really just relax. Again, the foundation for arousal is relaxation. I think automatically and spontaneously um, that which would happen reflexively is that you're going to get turned on and you're both going to really enjoy the moment, the experience, uh, and that you will absolutely have a good erection. And what I would say is if in some ways, you know, you're feeling maybe that's taking more time than you'd like and you'd like another sort of tool in your toolbox, listen, it's certainly um, an option to think about going to a urologist and being prescribed um, a PDE5 inhibitor. That would be like Viagra, Levitra, Cialis. And the one I typically recommend for clients is Cialis. And the reason is, you know, if it's Viagra or Levitra, you're thinking, hmm, am I going to have sex in an hour from now? And you know, that idea of taking a pill before sex, in my mind, only adds to the performance anxiety, the anticipation of. The great thing about Cialis is it has the longer half-life. And that then allows us like, it's like a 48-hour window. We sort of refer to it as the weekender. So it's sort of like, you know, if you like most couples, it, more often than not, this is going to be uh, when you're more rested and relaxed, it's going to be a weekend. So you take it on a Friday and you're like all weekend, you're good. And nothing needs to happen at any particular time. And yet when the moment feels right, the re- it, it's on board. And what a PDE5 does, it relaxes smooth muscle tissue and creates blood flow. So it doesn't guarantee an erection, but it certainly uh, boosts that arousal and sensation and uh, again, blood flow. And so again, under the right conditions and feeling relaxed, I think uh, you will find that it could be a helpful tool to, you know, gain the confidence. Um, But that ultimately it really is about the relaxation because clearly you're attracted, you're aroused. And uh, I I totally know that under the right conditions, it's it's just going to happen, but it's definitely about not psyching yourself out um, and realizing that, uh, you know, just focus on the connection and the enjoyment of, as a couple, taking it to this next step. And then after that, then what the next step is and this idea of what is the next bridge um, and certainly where she feels completely, I imagine, in control because that's part of the safety. So potentially her being on top and her sort of guiding when she's ready your penis and sort of taking all the time she needs. Um, or it might look like uh, you're using your fingers um, and she's guiding your fingers or you know, you both think through uh, and have her pay attention to the thought of just describing these things, which one feels like the right next step. Um, Because it feels like you guys are way on your journey. And as always, I can't wait to hear how it goes. 
Thanks so much, Dr. Megan. To learn more about her and her work, visit greatlifegreatsex.com. I loved what she said about allowing yourselves to be vulnerable and the different tips and tricks she suggested were awesome. I also wondered, as I was listening, if perhaps being in different rooms the first time or for a while might be helpful, you know, just taking those baby steps. But I think it's beautiful that you two are allowing yourselves to be vulnerable and to be in it together uh, just sounds very promising. And I, I'm sure there's a lot of wonderful pleasure in your future. Tika, I wonder if you could speak a bit to rebuilding a sense of trust and, you know, allowing yourselves to be intimate and to feel safe. Because as you mentioned, there was this history where that was not your own. And I know that you also work with a lot of people who experience these things. So what are some of the things that can be helpful? Well, like, I just, Jeff, like, I just want to say one thing. Um, You're an awesome awesome guy and maybe if you assist her in what she's doing you know saying that she's you know saying some sexy words to her touching her kissing her kissing on her while she's doing her thing I'm pretty sure that that might help you help you out in the arousal area as well I love that idea yeah and it's just I I understand being um, a survivor of sexual assault, it's hard for you to trust. Um, trust has to be there before anything else, before the intimacy can actually be there. And there was a point in time where, you know, you ha- well, you have this two different sides of the spectrum. You have someone who is scared to open up and be sexual. Then you have someone that's over overly sexual. And I was on the side of being overly sexual because I always felt, you know, especially when I was younger, that sex equals love. You know, those lines were very blurred for me. So when I, it it took for me to feel an emptiness and finding out that I wasn't getting everything that I wanted in a relationship. Yes, the sex is great. But he's not giving me any time. He's not giving me, you know, he's, he's not giving me any attention. He's not giving me understanding. So once I was able to break down, you know, and, and put everything on a scale and say, yeah, sex is great, but he's a jerk, you know. And it was just like it, it wasn't working for me. And it took, it, once I broke up with my ex, I had to take a step back. And I really looked at my life and I really was just like, okay, there's something missing. I need to humble myself completely, even in that way. You know, far as my financial part, I had to humble myself. But then also in the list of what I needed in a man, because my list was very, very shallow. It's very superficial. You know, most women, we want him to be fine, good looking. You know, we want him to have money and we we want him to be a rock star in bed. Like that, for young girls, for young women, that's what we want. That is the standard. What we've been taught to find sexy, right? Exactly. But, but what I learned or what I had to learn was that I need a compassionate man. I need an empathetic man. I need an understanding man. You know, I need someone that's going to love me as much as I love them. Someone that's going to, to see me for who I am and not for what I can do. And once I was able to, once I was able to heal myself and, and, and find my own value, I was able to change my list. And it's, it's beautiful because now I have someone in my life that is that new list for me. You know, he he makes me feel like I'm everything. And I have never had that feeling ever in my life. And it's just like, I must have finally did something right in my life. 
to actually have this type of love in my life that I didn't think that I was worthy of. Are many, many, many right things. Yeah. You're such a, a thriver. Yeah. So beautiful. And I'm so happy for you and for your partner. Yay, Brian. Who has a total <laughs> warrior. Yes. Amazing queen of a partner. Oh, super supportive. <laughs> he's, he's, he's wonderful. That is so great. That yeah. is so great. So if anybody wants to get involved to mm-hmm. make a difference, mm-hmm. what are some of the things that we can do? Um, I would... I would suggest to first find out um, where the uh, human trafficking task force are in their city or even in their county. Um, I, I go to the Los Angeles Human Trafficking Task Force and I am a part of the Long Beach Human Trafficking Task Force. And um, awesome, awesome. Um, because I live in the city of Long Beach, um, I. I go to the the Long Beach task force more often and they get it, you know, they get it. That's my, it's my town, you Mm. know, they get it. You know, they made me a part of their core team because they wanted to be survivor led, survivor influenced, as well as people that are in the nonprofit sector or that are in the church or that are, you know, in business. So they have all these heavy hitters. They have all these brilliant minds in one room. And then they're like, so Tika, how do you feel about this? And it's just like, yeah, you get it. Yeah, You get it. Because before they ask a question to the masses or to the service providers that, that come to, that come to the meetings or to the people that want to help, they'll ask me, you know, of course they'll go through their circle, but they will ask me, so how do you feel about it? In the eyes of a survivor, and I, you know, even as a, you know, go back to the eyes of a victim, how would you feel if X, Y, and Z? And it's a great feeling. So I, I love Long Beach. Long Beach Human Trafficking Task Force. LA Long Beach Human Trafficking Task Force, great. I mean, if you want to be a part of it and you don't know um, how to be a part of the of the uh, the fight? You have more than enough agencies because it's all the whole LA County under one roof. So there might be volunteer opportunities. Yes. Maybe you can donate, yes. help with fundraising. Yes, events, donations, far as to nonprofit organizations that are helping women get out of the life. Um, like I said, um, Journey Out is my organization that I work with or should I say I work for, um, we have an awesome team um, of caseworkers, of, you know, our um, our executive director. She is a retired LAPD um, second sergeant. She was on the vice. She used to um, arrest women for prostitution. Now she's helping women, in mm. prost- you know, that are in And criminalizing the criminal. Exactly. Yeah. And then it's like, you know, there we have a need. You know, we need donations. We need volunteers to help us out. You know, we need, you know, gift cards. I mean, underwear, socks, you know. Um, feminine hygiene feminine products. Feminine hygiene. Oh, yes. Feminine hygiene products. You know, books. Um, just someone to talk to in certain areas. If you are a business person, you don't really have, or you, if you don't have the money to really donate your time, to come and say a few things or to teach them about something. You know, everyone has a story. And if if doesn't you don't necessarily have to relate 100% with that person's story, but something out of that person's story, even if it's a totally different life, can be a gem to someone that needs the help. Yeah, yeah. Know? And how might we know? Say we are traveling mm-hmm. and we've learned maybe some of the signs of human trafficking, somebody who is, you know, not making eye contact and maybe looks harmed in some physical way or Mm -hmm. uh, makes excuses about this person that they're with. You sent something. Mm -hmm. What can you do then? It depends on the situation. Um, If you you think that something is going on, you know, you can always call the human trafficking um, hotline. Um, Or if you know where the person lives and it's, you know, you can always do it that way. Um, to try and get that person away 
or speak to that person away from their exploiter. Um, it's the safest way to go about it. Don't, uh, don't do too much while the person is there mm. because you could be putting that person in danger. Yeah, they yeah. could be hurt for mm -hmm. sure. The National Human and Trafficking Hotline number that you mentioned, it's 888-373-7888. And on their website, it says you can also text the word HELP to be free. That's 233-733. If you notice any kind of signs mm -hmm. um, and certainly connecting with somebody who does know what to do yes. seems really important. Uh couple of just last questions. This has been so insightful and, and inspiring and, and helpful. I'd love to see you speak again. <laughs> uh, if you were to give, when you are to give your next TED Talk, oh. what would the topic be? Oh, gosh. So I guess I shared such a big part of my life. There are smaller pieces of my life that lead, led me up to that point. Um, I talk a lot about generational trauma. So that is something that people really need to understand um, as because it goes along with identity. I had this huge identity crisis growing up because I was black and poor living in the jungles of Los Angeles, California. But I went to school in Pacific Palisades. Which is one of the ritziest <laughs> places on the planet, by the way. Yes, and... I had this the self-hate for myself. I had this, why am I, why did I have to be black and poor? Mm. You know, black is bad. Everything, you know, on the media, being black was terrible. We're, we're, you know, we're monsters and we're not good enough. And that's just what the media told me growing up. So, you know, I hated being black for a very long time. But it wasn't until I started to learn more about who I am, more about my people, then I started to regain pride in myself. Because you have to understand this. When you, if I was to ask you, where are you from? You could tell, you know, I'm Irish, you know, I'm German, I'm Dutch, you know, I, my family came from here. But when yeah. you ask a black person, where are you from? Well, my grandma from Louisiana, you know, my, my grandpa from Ohio, that's as far as we can go. So in, in order to have pride in self, you need to know who you are. So that's something that I would love to talk about, you know, generational trauma along with, you know, identity of, uh, you know, personally, the identity of a black woman in America. Yeah, that would be powerful. You shared in your talk. Yeah. You said, good thing black don't crack. <laughs> black, yes, thank you, Lord. <laughs> yes, I'm just so glad to be 37 years old. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I still get carded. I'm just like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you are so amazing. And if you were to have the nurse who helped you along mm -hmm. that day sitting right here, what might you say to her? Mm. You know, uh, gosh, thank you for saving my life, you know, because I could just imagine, I could just imagine what would have happened if I would have stayed in California and if he would have found me, mm. you know, I can't remember your name, but I'll never forget your face and I'll never forget the words that you told me and I just never forget what you did for me I hope you're well and I hope that you get everything everything that you want in life because you deserve it and so much more beautiful and as do you and what an example of the difference one person can make yes in that nurse and in you yeah how many lives you are changing how many lives you are saving yeah you may never even know I, and like I said, you know, because of the work that I do and because of the outcome and because of the many women that, um, that have contacted me, um, that have disclosed something that they've never told anyone else, 
um, when my, when everything came to light and I was able to shed the shame and tell everyone that this was my life and this was my story. So many women have came out and said, you know what? I would never be able to tell anyone this, but I'm going to talk to you about it. You know, and, um, young girls that said, you know, it happened to me, but I'm not going to let this be my, my complete story. Yes. You know, I'm going to shake it off now and move forward, you mm. know, or a young girl saying, you know what? A guy had was talking to me and I, I, I didn't, I didn't talk to him, but it just felt weird. What, what should I do? And then I start, you know, just telling them like, cause you can't tell a teenager what not to do. <laughs> you can, all you can do is just tell them, you know, the certain, the different outcomes or consequences of certain actions. Yeah. And then for the girl to call call me back or to contact me again and say, you know what? I found out that he pimped out two other girls and I dodged a bullet. Thank you so much for helping me out. Mm. So it's just, I feel like a higher power God or whatever you want to call it, you know, knew that I was strong enough to handle this. Knew that I was going to gain knowledge from this and I will be able to use it to help someone else. So like I said, because of that, uh, it's everything I went through was hard. I wouldn't, I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. But at the same time, I can get through it. I'm strong enough for it, and I can help other people through it. So it was worth it. Thank you, Tika, and thank you for making the world a better place. <laughs> thank you. If you're listening, thank you for doing so. I hope you will pay forward the gift Tika has given today and find out about your local task force, become more aware, make yourself available to people in need, and to know that if you are in a dark place, if you are struggling similarly, mm-hmm. or through something else uh, that feels insurmountable, I'm sitting here with proof that most anything is possible. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. right. And if you're enjoying Girl Vanner Radio, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes if you haven't. And again, check out my website for extras and you'll be able to find Tika's TEDx talk, augustmclaughlin.com. Thanks for listening and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week.